You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hello, hello. Hope you're all having a happy Wednesday. Uh, today on the Accounted For podcast is Matt O'Leary. Matt is the Chief Partnership Officer at Carrot Rewards. Carrot Rewards is an app that helps people meet their personal health and fitness goals using kind of like a habit-based reward system. And it also kind of has a play and loyalty points as well. And Carrot Rewards is a Toronto-based company. And Matt really had, truly has had what I would consider an international career journey where he started in PR, like so public relations and lobbying in London, London, United Kingdom, London, uh, and then moving over to Singapore, then creating a venture lab for the billionaire AirAsia founder and ex-Virgin executive Tony Fernandez in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia until he finally returned home to Canada to continue his journey in the startup ecosystem by focusing on like biz dev roles. And we actually also go through just what biz dev is, because I've personally had the con- constant confusion with sales versus biz dev versus partnerships. And so we talk about that. Um, and we also talk about how just how his lobbying for international government organizations and his product management experience at AirAsia led to how he leads the partnership role at Carrot today. And this just seems like such a well-planned out uh, career path, but obviously this was not what Matt really had intended. And we just dig into his adventure today. So, you know, take a break to listen to this awesome story of Matt O'Leary. And before I send you off to listen to the story, just wanted to remind you, support the podcast, by rating it five stars on iTunes, and also if you could leave a positive, helpful review of how the podcast may have helped you uh, and impacted your life in a positive way, that would definitely be helpful. And look forward to getting your name uh, shouted out in a future episode. All right, thanks, and please enjoy the episode with Matt O'Leary. Hey everyone, welcome back to Accounted For. Today on the podcast, we have Matt O'Leary from Carrot Rewards. Hey Matt, thanks for coming to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, Matt here is the Chief Partnership Officer at Carrot Rewards. And so Matt, to begin off, um, do you mind explaining to our listeners what Carrot Rewards does? Yeah, so it's really simple. Carrot Rewards is a mobile app uh, that rewards you with your favorite loyalty points for learning more about your health to increase your knowledge and confidence. as well as rewarding you for meeting daily step goals. Hmm. And is this a Canada-wide uh, app? So right now we're only available in three provinces, uh, Ontario, BC, and Newfoundland. So you know, um, the joke I always make is two provinces in a town, but uh, we have actually a million registered users just in those three provinces. Oh, wow. Uh, and we'll be going national in January. Wow. Yeah. That's, it. That's, it. That's amazing. Yeah, it's, um, you know, we've only been in market for uh, two and a half years, so, you know, we're pretty proud of it. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Um, and hopefully this helps reach a wider audience and our listeners can also get involved as well. Yeah. And so to begin off, I kind of want to go back to your earlier days. And you told me that from a previous conversation that you grew up around here in Markham. Yeah. Um, and you were a very, 
I guess, athletic growing up? You had you played a lot of different sports? I, yeah, I would say that um, I played a lot of different sports. I don't know what that means in terms of athletic, but um, yeah, I grew up in Markham, Ontario. Uh, you know, uh, had a really idyllic upbringing. I have a twin sister, uh, a sister who's 17 months younger, um, amazing parents, and, and um, I guess they'd always, you know, tried to motivate us to be kind of active uh, physically, also just kind of, you know, they had high expectations and, and, and a lot of, I guess, hope for us and, and, yeah. And so were you like the typical Canadian who wanted to be a professional ice hockey player when you were seven? Um, I actually wasn't. Um, so because I, you know, there was three of us that were 17 months apart, um, my dad found a sport for us that wouldn't uh, involve him being in a hockey rink uh, at five in the morning sipping coffee. Um, so we grew up ski racing. Uh, it was a really easy way for him, I think, to, and both of my parents to kind of pass us off on the weekends to, um, uh, to our ski instructors and get some time to themselves. And, you know, it's an amazing family sport. Wow. Was it like Nordic skiing or cross country? Downhill skiing. Downhill. Which you would know being from Vancouver. Yeah. I, um, I, we had a ski team back when I was in high school, so I've seen a couple of videos of that. But yeah. You that, didn't ski yourself? I did. I skied. So I started skiing. Um, we have Cyprus, so I was fortunate enough to start skiing early. And then it was not really that cool when you're in high school, so I did snowboarding. And then. I broke my face in the first year, then my wrist the second, and I call it one the third, and so mm -hmm. now I just don't bother snowboarding yeah. anymore. So snowboarding's tough because you fall yeah. on your wrists, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I broke most bones, actually, in, in every sport that I played. <laughs> um, but, you know, skiing is something that you can do till your 80s, so I'm glad I have that base. No, that's true. I think I, if I ever do go back to winter sports, I might go back to skiing. It's just safer for my knees as well, I think, after my surgery. Yeah. Um, Cool. So you grew up in Markham, and yeah. so you went to school at Queens. Like if we looked at your LinkedIn profile, you did a part I of did. yeah political studies in Queens, and then you decided to leave the country and go to London to do some international studies. Mm -hmm. And your career continues on in London. Why? Why did you go over to the UK? So my dad was actually born in London. Uh, you know, with my last name being O'Leary, we're, we're obviously of Irish heritage. But after World War II, where my grandfather was a member of the uh, of the uh, British Navy, he ended up settling in London, um, where my dad was born. He ended up coming and emigrating to Canada. And uh, because of that, I have a British passport. I think that um, I'd actually give Queens credit for this. You know. Uh, it, the idea of being able to just go and, and explore the world was something that was really common amongst the friends and, and classmates that I had at Queens. Huh. And so I always just knew that I was going to leverage the fact that I could live in another country. Um, and I knew that from the moment that I entered Queens and I had a fantastic time and uh, ended up going over there to do my, to do my master's studies. Um, and of course it was easier because I, I was a British citizen. Yeah. And why, why uh, international studies? So I originally wanted to be a diplomat. That was how my career started. So I studied politics at Queens, and I was interested in the things that actually I've applied since in my in my business career, which is the ideas of negotiation and how do you you know bring a lot of people on side. Those are skills that um, you have to leverage as an entrepreneur. Uh, and the school that I chose to go to, uh, uh, the School of Oriental and African Studies, had a very strong diplomacy program. Uh, and so that was that was the whole kind of impetus behind it. 
and but you didn't go down the diplomat route. You no. you joined the uh, Brunswick Group, and if I'm correct, it's kind of like a is that is it like a lobbying company or is it? So they have a public it? affairs for uh, um, uh, portion of their business, but what they are is a strategic communications firm. So what they end up doing is that if you have a big cross border M and A transaction. Um, there are a lot of things that can affect the outcome of the deal. One of the biggest things is how uh, the communications are done towards the analyst community on the capital market side, uh, as well as the press. And so that's the, where the public affairs kind of government lobbying angle comes in. Um, it was a really interesting firm, highly regarded in, in the UK, uh, have since massively expanding, expanding globally. Um, but yeah, that was that was an interesting story how, how I ended up there, which was... I did a summer uh, in 2007 uh, as a banking analyst at Standard Chartered Bank. Oh, so like investment banking. Yeah, that was, you know, it was, it was a time from 2003 to 2007 when, uh, you know, if you put on a half-decent suit in London, you were going to get hired at a bank. And uh, it was an incredibly frothy time in terms of a market to be in that. And, you know, then, of course, the, the bottom ended up coming out. Um, and so the, the analyst program that I was in ended up not taking on any more students for that year. I was kind of stuck in London without a job and ended up answering this ad uh, and got the job at, at, at Brunswick Group. Okay. What, what made you not want to pursue that diplomat route that you had um, so eagerly thought about? It's too slow. You know, I think that uh, the, the idea of it, as I learned more about it, I realized that I was you know, more interested in the idea of being a diplomat, um, which is, uh, you know, a fascinating career. Uh, it's competitive to get into. You have to, to kind of pay your dues. And I, I was too impatient for all that. I realized I was uh, much more suited and, and more built towards uh, a career in business. Hmm. Yeah, so it's more the process of, I guess, the activities of a diplomat that interests you, not so much the title itself. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the title did too. You know, it's a prestigious job, and um, just being honest about it. And um, the the activity piece really is that you're not having to use your brain that much. You are largely just communicating, uh, and, and and you know, regurgitating is the wrong word, but just communicating what whatever you're told from from your from your government. And uh, I wanted to do something that was a bit more creative. And so you went to join a strategic communications firm, and you continued on. So it's relatively similar path. Like you joined another firm after that called Creed that does like public relations. So the firm I actually joined is a company called Gavin Anderson. We were then bought by a company called Crayab. Oh, okay, Crayab. Uh, yeah. Um, Hard name. It is. It's Swedish. So it's a Swedish-based company that is the largest uh, lobbying firm in the EU. So towards the European Parliament. And, um, you know, that was a really fascinating company to join, especially at that time. It was the first time I'd ever been through um, and got to do that early in my career, uh, you know, an, um, an acquisition kind of, and, and had to, you know, figure out how to integrate with our new owners. Um, and that was a fascinating time. And what does a lobby lobbyist do? Just like goes for really nice dinners, you know. Yeah. lunch and coffee and networking um, you know it's it's what my, I was doing specifically at that time was really trying to understand how the press was influencing uh, we did a lot of crisis management so the big project that I worked on at that time was 
there was a financial crisis in Europe, uh, and we were representing the, the government of Portugal um, and their efforts to try to communicate to an international audience that they were you know, doing well economically. Um, and so coming up with the strategies about how they communicated their positions to the press, uh, how they communicated towards the European Union, that's what we helped with. Were they, were they in a good economical position? Uh, I mean, no. But I, you know, I think that the whole idea of being able to, uh, no one really was then, you know, uh, particularly in Portugal and, and, and Greece and, and, and Spain. Um, but trying to help them craft their story, craft their narrative um, was something that, I, that we did. Gotcha. And for these kind of public relations companies, do where does your involvement and like, start and, and is it, so you come in, I guess, during the crisis and then do you just draft up, like, you should say this and then you leave, leave it up to them after that? Yeah, well, I mean, I think with anybody at the level that we were certainly dealing at, so, you know, we had, uh, that, that was the big project that I worked on, but we worked with, you know, uh, companies with, there were FTSE 250 companies and, and their CEOs and their executive teams. And really, and I kind of will get to the point about how I, I thought about that position. Um, it was interesting to have that kind of exposure, but you were just an advisor. So you could offer advice, but ultimately you're responsible for the execution of it. And the people who sat in those seats um, were the ones that, that were making the decision. So they would take our advice and they would incorporate it, um, but they did not have, they were gonna do whatever they wanted to. you know. And I, I, I always felt that being in an advisory service is, you know, it's a, a necessity and there's many different types of advisors. Um, but sitting in that role for about four years made me realize I wanted to be on the other side of the coin. I wanted to have more skin in the game. And did you realize that um, while you were in London, or was this when you now transitioned over to Singapore, now a new continent? Um, I think I had I'd realized it really early on. You know, it's it's. Uh, I think anybody wants to find meaning in their work, and people want to have agency over what they're doing. And the thing about advisory services that I realized at the time was that uh, there was going to be a limit to where that could, you know, kind of net out and and how much influence you could actually have. And so um, I I'd had that thought in London, um, but I also still had always known that I you know, wanted to use a career to help me go and, and see the world. So you know, that, that um, I think is always set up as a dichotomous thing that you, know, you wanna travel and go explore or you wanna settle down and have a career. And I always, from the, from the outset when I left Queens and moved to London, saw that you could do both. You could build a career while also, um, you know, getting to travel and explore and, and, uh, and you know, see the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, London, we talked about how, yeah, your father was English, and so he had a passport, and it made He's sense. Irish, but he was born in England. Sorry, Irish, but yeah. born in England. He'll my, definitely want me to say that. My apologies, my apologies. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I actually went to a, a British school when I was in elementary school, so I was kind of educated in, in the Vancouver. differences. No, um, in Hong Kong. So I was, okay. I was born in South Korea, then I moved to Hong Kong, but that was 1997, so the Brits just left, mm -hmm. but I still attended a school that was run by the uh, Brits there. So I think one teacher was from Scotland, one was from actually like mm -hmm. England, and they kind of educated me in a difference because they'd have their internal quabbles. Um, but yeah, uh, regardless, so you, 
but Singapore, where's where's a connection there? Why did you want to go over to Singapore now? From it was here? really opportunistic. You know, I got offered after working on this project um, that we were doing with Portugal uh, from the, the CEO of the company to kind of transfer to the Singapore office. Uh, I'd never been to Singapore, so I took the transfer without ever having actually been to the country. Um, and you know, I was I think 26 at the time, so I just had a, a two bags that you know were filled up all my belongings and kind of got on a flight and went. And so now you go to Singapore, but you're still with the same company and you're I'm doing the same, the same thing. Company, yeah. um, and then after that, you, like you said, you didn't want to be an agent anymore or an advisor anymore, and so you know, transition over to be eventually you, you become the head of product management at Air Asia mm-hmm. in Kuala Lumpur. Quite the jump. Yeah. How kind of connected to me that for me there you go from being a lobbyist to being the head of product management yeah yeah so you know the um i moved to singapore in uh october of 2010 and uh at that time you know the the world in the west anyways was still recovering from the 2008 recession or not even recovering yet it still felt like this was armageddon and there seemed to be a huge move uh to and in terms of opportunity and going east so you know there was just a lot of companies that were looking to um, the rising countries of course china and india but also in southeast asia and um so i ended up there and i was working and, and the firm that, that i was with crab their office in singapore did primarily investor relations work that was really straightforward, not that interesting. Um, I'd always been interested in technology. I you know, had worked with technology companies as clients um, and just kind of taught in, in myself and, and learned things on the side. And um, an opportunity came up. So a friend of mine and I, still a very, very close friend of mine, um, he got to know uh, a, a billionaire in uh, Asia, Tony Fernandez, who founded AirAsia. Um, Tony's a fascinating guy, one of the world's great entrepreneurs. He uh, ended up founding AirAsia after working for Richard Branson in the 1980s uh, at Virgin Music. Um, and then kind of took that whole idea, that, that Virgin idea of branded venture capitalism, and uh, you know, kind of ripped it off wholesale and applied it in a Southeast Asian context. So if, you've looked, if you um, see the AirAsia logo, it looks a lot like the Virgin logo. Have you seen it? I have. I've actually been on an um, AirAsia flight. Okay. And it's, it's definitely a discount. It's de- <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of Ryanair. I think that's yeah, a similar one. Yeah, it is definitely a discount. Um, and um, yeah, so he, you know, he started with that airline. He bought, uh, he bought one plane from the Malaysian government in 2001. Um, you know, that was for, it was one ringgit and 10 million in debt. Uh, ended up turning that into the black and, you know, within two years and listed the company and then, you know, built this conglomerate that had hotels and telecoms and he owned an F1 team at the time when, when we were working with him. Um, uh, Queens Park Rangers in the English Premiership League. Um, just a really, you know, incredible entrepreneur. And so um, Aaron had pitched him on starting this venture group that was going to be attached to the airline that we were going to spin out into a different business. Um, and that group was going to do two things, which was uh, leverage the existing assets that, you know, or, or a number of assets that um, were in uh, this kind of group of businesses uh, to build technology products for them. And the other one was to do uh, technology partnerships with startups. And so, um, uh, you know, Aaron and I kind of met. I took on this job, you know, kind of trial by fire of jumping into a product management role when I'd never done that before. Um, 
And that, that whole idea, uh, especially when you're in your 20s of, you know, wanting to try a number of different careers, going from being a lobbyist in the UK to uh, being a, a, a product leader, um, seems like a huge gulf. And uh, I, I just, it ended up not being, it ended up being an amazing experience of being able to learn um, and, and kind of apply uh, things in a whole new way in, in, a, in a new environment. And how, how did the uh, like the pitching process go? So Tony Fernandez has his Air Asia conglomerate, and so you and your friend Aaron just did you guys just cold call him and set so, up a meeting? So Aaron actually worked uh, at BlackBerry at the time, and um, Tony was a big client of BlackBerry's, and he managed the relationship. And uh, Tony had this thing, and he still has it, um, where he really uh, hires people for hunger and for motivation to learn. And it's not about aptitude. His, his, his thing that he always talked about is that you can see you know, the fire in someone's eyes or feel if they're passionate. Um, and skills can be taught and skills can be learned. But that's something that's really hard to teach. You know, do you have somebody who has that kind of fire to, to, to grow and, and, and to learn? Um, and so he took a swing on Aaron and Aaron brought me into the fold and you know that was it was an amazing two years um, an amazing two years in the sense that we uh, shared an apartment together in Kuala Lumpur so I moved from Singapore to Kuala Lumpur and Aaron was already in Kuala Lumpur at yeah the time? Gotcha. Aaron was already in Kuala Lumpur at the time um, I moved in with him and his girlfriend so you know close living quarters and it was it was um, you know everything that you think about when you think of a startup, we had a huge whiteboard in our living room. We'd wake up at, you know, three in the morning and be plotting things out, and um, it was a really, you know, incredible time. And I think this seems like a very relatively unique um, setup where you have a startup, but it, you essentially joined, I guess, a bigger conglomerate itself, and practically Tony's trusting you guys to create this big incubator lab like venture company, yeah. and so. He's just kind of funding you guys and saying, hey, here's a time limit. Try to start it up and make it into business. Yeah. So that was really it. You know, it was getting to be uh, an entrepreneur with a lot of resources. Well, I, you know, as, you, as you'd already mentioned, it is a budget airline. So, you know, this wasn't uh, a ton of, uh, of funds and, and being cost conscious and frugal was, you know, one of the, um, the values of the airline. But. It certainly was a great opportunity to be able to access a number of different uh, uh, businesses that kind of had a built-in client base for us to, to start from. Mm. And how, how was the uh, build-up of the actual fund itself? Like, Did you guys see success relatively quick? Um, so we did. So what, what the, the biggest product, product that we built was the airline's booking engine, which had like 4 million downloads in Southeast Asia. Their mobile booking engine, sorry. Um, you know, I think did a hundred million dollars in bookings per year. Um, I think that seller's not ring it. Uh, and then we just kind of tried a bunch of other things. So the team ended up growing at the beginning from you know about six people into thirty people. Um, we had a number of different projects going, none that really hit like that core one. But you know, again, we were in an okay spot to do that because um, we uh, we had we had support from 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 the mothership. Right. Mm -hmm. And this kind of like booking software that you guys uh, built, like this mobile app that you guys built up, did it just come from a lot of different A-B testings? You guys just thought, okay, what can we do to help the airline and what are the, all the different problems we could solve? So this would have been in 2012 and, 
you know, um, what you were seeing there at that time was an interesting thing where people were skipping the, the, the stage of owning a laptop and they were skipping the web and they were jumping right to mobile. And, you know, at that time as well, BlackBerry still had a huge market penetration in uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, iPhones were not that, that uh, um, not that rare, but, uh, you know, there, there weren't a ton of them. And then Android had a huge share of the market. And so being able to go to this kind of mobile first market and build a product um, just made sense to us. And, and so that was the one big thing that we, that we built. We launched a couple other things that we had. Um, we launched a, at the time it was when uh, Groupon was taking off. So we launched a group booking uh, website that absolutely flopped about how to, uh, how to take some of the leftover inventory from the airplane and, and offer these group deals. That didn't work. Um, but you know, the, it, it, was, it was an amazing uh, experience to learn about how to run and build a product team and how to learn how to kind of iterate that whole idea of the lean startup, which is you know, building things quickly and testing them and marketing and getting real-time feedback. That was where I learned that. And that's a way of thinking um, you know, that can affect a lot of areas of your life, which is this growth mindset about how you're constantly, constantly learning. Mm-hmm. And you, you don't have a you know technical background. You're not an no, engineer. No, I don't. And was Aaron the technical background? So he wasn't an engineer. He was a physicist. Uh, so he had a technical background, but he did not have a, a computer engineering background. Gotcha. So did you guys end up um, using the funds to really just focus on hiring a tech team so to build out the idea? Yeah. So we had like a budget is the way to think about it as opposed to funds. Um, we had a CTO who's incredible. He actually ended up going on now to lead mobile at Grab Taxi, which is Southeast Asia's answer to Uber. Right. Um, yeah. That was an actually an interesting story. So they came to us and asked us to do a partnership when there was five of them in an office. Um, you know, this is a company now that is worth billions and billions of dollars, at least on paper. And uh, they wanted to, to install, install their technology in taxis and be able to pick people up at the airport. And so we did this first partnership. And Aaron and I, you know, considered, uh, you know, how we can invest and ended up not doing it. And I think everybody has one of those stories about where you miss a big opportunity. Um, but yeah, it's so, so, you know, we had, we, there was an actually an incredible team and an incredible amount of talent that we were able to find. Um, uh, there that we, we ended up turning into this, you know, this kind of ragtag group called, um, so it was called AirAsia Tech and Innovation, and it was then spun out and became a company that still exists called Tune Labs. Tune Labs, yeah. gotcha. And you didn't end up staying with that team. You ended up coming back to Toronto and ended up taking a position at Extreme Labs, uh, yep. which ended up getting bought up by Pivotal and the role changed to more of a, it seems like a sales capacity. So yeah. how did that uh, transpire? So my fourth job change already. Yeah, so we were okay, we were lobbyists, <laughs> and I think this is now um, back to, I guess, the home continent. You've been to three continents now, and yeah. I decided to come home. Yeah, so, you know, I've been gone at that point for almost uh, seven and a half years. As I said at the beginning, um, you know, you wouldn't think of it because I'd, been moving farther and farther away from them, but you know I'm incredibly close with my family. Um, my uh, twin sister had just gotten married, and I was back in town. So this would have been uh, in May of 2013, and um, I ended up meeting someone. I was back for a while, and he ended up meeting a friend of a friend uh, who was a, a you know a senior uh, business development guy at, at, at Extreme Labs, um, and ended up kind of going through the interview process. I started it here, but ended up 
doing it almost exclusively via Skype uh, while I was back in Kuala Lumpur and ended up getting an offer. And, you know, I'd kind of um, seen that uh, where my role with Tune Labs had reached a, a natural end and that this was a good opportunity to go home and, and kind of join and, and become a part of the Toronto startup ecosystem. And Extreme Labs, is the business model similar to Tune Labs? The labs sound, sim- sound the same? Yeah, so, you know, Tune Labs, really what we were, you know, there's lots of different places in that market, but we were a development services company, and that's what Extreme Labs was. Extreme Labs' differentiator was that they were exclusively focused on mobile, really before anybody else was. So um, it was started by, you know, uh, um, Amr Varma, um, who uh, ended up becoming my boss, and um, he, uh, you know, the, the idea was how do you build a software development firm doing this really early, this is 2008 or 2009, that's going to be only focused on mobile uh, on mobile products. And so for a, a time up until the acquisition, they were really the leader, uh, in, you know, of any development company, um, you know, in, in North America uh, for building mobile, mobile products. Mm-hmm. And... Extreme gets bought up by Pivotal, so it's not your second time you're going through an acquisition. Yeah. <laughs> and so you must be accustomed to it now. And I don't know about accustomed. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I had a better idea what to prepare for. Right, so yeah. you did. And last time we talked, you talked about how um, in, in this kind of sales role that the money was great, but the role itself wasn't what you really enjoyed too particularly much. Yeah, so, you know, it was, I was on a team of... Uh, there was about 10 of us that were, you know, whatever you want to call it, client director, account executive. We were quota-carrying salespeople. Um, it was really fun. I learned a lot of things. I have some great friends still from, from the Extreme Labs and Pivotal Labs, which is what Extreme Labs ended up becoming uh, within Pivotal. Um, you know, friends from there and colleagues, and it's an amazing alumni network of, of people. Um, but I... I I guess I'd, I'd looked at it and realized that I was actually in the right spot. So, you know, being in business development, which applies an ability to be able to understand product as well as understanding the business side, how do you drive revenue out of that, um, you know, was a more natural fit, fit for me. Um, and uh, I also missed the startup world, you know, where you're just kind of at a different phase in the company. Um, where you're ideating and you're trying to make things work and you're at that real kind of zero to one phase, whereas Pivotal had been a business that was spun out of EMC, which is a, a big data storage company um, uh, based in Boston. And uh, they'd kind of glued all these parts together. They ended up creating a really successful business uh, um, in uh, as a platform as a service, Cloud Foundry is their product. Uh, but that just wasn't something that I was passionate about or what I'd sign up for. Um, so yeah, that was uh, you know the, the, there was aspects of the role where I learned a ton on, but I, I missed I missed startups. Yeah, and we're seeing this continuous I guess iteration that like you're making con- continuously small changes to perfect I guess the model and now well, some you, were big changes. I right. Guess. Yeah. Yeah, some were big enough changes yeah. where you made enough of a shift, and it seems that in the beginning there were the big changes, and now you kind of, you've kind of found your groove, and so that, as you stated you had that inkling to go back to that startup world. And so you eventually left Pivotal to join a startup. Yeah. To, but in the similar position to lead up business development um, before you eventually joined 
Carrot Rewards. So how how'd that uh, startup experience go? This is fine. It was, you know, I never knew, I knew that it was never going to be a long-term thing. Uh, the company doesn't exist anymore, as 90% of startups don't. Um, you know, I just, uh, that, that first year that I was with Pivotal, I was spending, um, you know, most weeks in New York, and the company was getting me to move there, and I'd been away for a really long time, and I'd just met uh, and moved in with my now wife in, in Toronto, and so, you know, I, I was not that interested in, in, in moving to New York. And so um, I ended up, you know, leaving and, and kind of taking something on that was, this was an incredibly early stage. I wouldn't even be really be able to call it a company. It was kind of an ideation piece. And it was a good transition to kind of, you know, get into the startup world and figure out where I wanted to be uh, within it. Gotcha. And when you say like ideation phase, so was this company like pre any sort of like funding whatsoever? There was a little bit of funding in the business, but definitely pre-revenue. Gotcha. And in a lot of ways, pre-product. What made you want to go into something that was that early? Were you sold by the idea itself or the team? I was sold by the idea. I was sold by the team. You know, there was some people on that team who were they were great people. I just it wasn't in a, a space that I was that passionate about, and that's a normal thing. You know, it's it's um, it, it was a big jump for me to go from where I was at Pivotal, which was a somewhat safe job if not stressful because you know you had targets to hit to going and, and as I mentioned getting back into that startup roots about how do you ideate how do you think about where you're going to grow a company um, it was probably just a little bit too early for me to be honest and how does uh, Carrot come about now while you're in the startup so uh, Carrot was founded by a gentleman named Andreas Suvaliotis he was our CEO and founder um, and the way that he founded the company is that he'd sold a business that did something similar to Air Miles, which is a big Canadian loyalty points program. And uh, the whole idea was, uh, that initial idea that he had was, how can you use the power of loyalty points to incentivize people to do good? And the specific area that he chose, this was in 2007, was how can you incentivize people to live a more environmentally friendly lifestyle? And so um, he ended up selling the business to Air Miles. And his main learning was that if you actually leverage the, the brand of these currencies, so there's, you know, Canada's an, a loyalty-obsessed um, country, um, who in, in, in these, these, these companies like Air Miles or Aeroplan, uh, we're seeing have built huge, uh, huge user bases in, in, in the country. Um, and so he started taking the power of air miles and applying it to things like getting people to buy more fresh produce at uh, a grocery store or um, incentivizing people with loyalty points to sign up to the YMCA. And these programs were performing incredibly well in terms of marketing spend against other uh, forms of, of, of marketing um, that these the, the government largely was using. And so um, the Public Health Agency of Canada uh, had this program where they were partnering with private sector organizations and um, you know, really any organization that, that, that wasn't the government to help them deliver on mandates that they didn't think they'd be able to deliver on. And so Andreas and some of his former colleagues answered you know, and, and delivered this proposal that ended up getting accepted. So after he got accepted, um, he had to build a team and he brought on um, Sarah Richard, who's our chief product officer, uh, Dr. Mark Mitchell, who's our behavioral, uh, um, our principal behavioral science advisor, um, and, and me to, to, to run uh, partnerships and revenue, and that at that time meant, you know, we were 
we had this initial kind of funding grant from 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 the government, and we were going to build the business around that. Gotcha. And was this much more aligned to an area that you would be more passionate about? Like, how did you uh, make the decision to say this is the one I'm going to join it? You know what it was really is that um, I think that everybody is uh, certainly of certain generations is motivated by wanting to do some good in some way, shape, or form. And I think back to, um, you know, my earlier uh, academic, uh, you know, life, and you're trying to understand how, in what medium, in what way you're going to be able to do that. Um, And I had always kind of come to the point that business is the best tool, the best means with which to have an impact. And uh, just having this combine all of those things um, together, you know, with the idea that um, more good meant more profit and that we can build a company off of that was really exciting. Yeah, I think I, I had a similar um, realization a few months ago. Um, I think one, one book that was really helpful was Richard Branson's biography, Losing My Virginity, mm-hmm. on he's done a lot of good for the world and he's tried partnering with the government and doing it or running a company and doing it and the latter has worked much better for him and I also caught up with a colleague who left the consulting world after long periods and we joined the government to advise um, and unfortunately the person confirmed that yeah I'm probably going to leave and if I want to do some good you're probably better off doing a private enterprise and or public 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 stock market enterprise or whatnot um, to try to make the change happen just because she was just really disillusioned by um, what you could do or what could not do, really, when you joined the government. Yeah, and I don't, I, th- I don't, I think it's even more complicated than that. You know, you have to find a way to get all different sectors of society working together if you want to have an impact, and uh, that's something that you know we've done with varying degrees of success. It's certainly not an easy thing, um, but you know, kind of sitting in this place where we have the nimbleness and the agile. Um, you know, structure of a, of a private company, of a startup company, um, but working with these huge, you know, government partners and and um, and corporate partners, and kind of you know, uh, uh, sitting in the middle of all that, that I think is the the sweet spot. Of, it's the Venn diagram of where you're going to end up having the most impact. Yeah, I I, I agree. I think I think Carrot definitely presents a unique business model that actually works quite well with the kind of health based system that we have i think it's um i think mm-hmm. our system is relatively similar to that of like the uk and i think australia as well where um the government has a huge amount of like funding available for the health in- health initiative and they do care heavily it's kind of from a socialist style system yeah well i mean they're the countries here the uk australia is a bit more privatized but they are the largest insurer in the country Right. And so they have the incentive to have a healthier population. And that was always really, I should say, the other element of this, which is that um, we wanted to have an impact at scale. So the idea, one of the things that we would say to represent that is that we don't want to get, you know, one person to run a marathon. Um, we want to get 100,000 people to walk 1,000 more steps a day. And what does that effect look like cumulatively on, you know, on, on the healthcare system? Right. Getting people from zero to 80 rather than from 80 to like 99. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. And right now in your position, you're the chief partnership officer. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned earlier, 
you kind of felt that you know the role of business development and that realm definitely like, gelled well with you. How is there a particular difference between the roles of like sales, business dev, and partnerships? Like people call it so many different things, and some people tell me there is a distinct difference, and some people say no. And I know it sometimes depends on the stage of the company, but how do you distinguish it? If you do, yeah, that's a really good question, um, and I'd be curious to hear what other people said about it. But you know, for us, partnerships in, in our organization, and I think it actually can be con- confusing uh, to the outside. In terms of what my responsibilities are, they are for revenue, so that would be typical sales. Um, they are for advancement, you know, strategic business development. So how do we? you know, grow and partner with other companies that will allow us to move into new markets and, and new verticals and potentially new products. And then the third piece is client success, which is more tied to the first one with revenue about how do you have a team that's servicing clients that are paying um, to act to, to, to use Garrett. Gotcha. And so uh, that doesn't necessarily answer the question that you asked. Um, I think the skill sets are largely the same. Um, but how they are applied is very different. Right? So when you think about a sales role, um, you need to have all the you know, ability to understand a market and where there's opportunity and how to qualify a client um, and, and see where there can be a buyer of your product and a fit because that's just always gonna be an easier and, and quicker way to close a sale. But you're doing that on, you know, there, there's more repeatability built into the system. You have something that you're selling, um, you understand, generally speaking, where the market is, and it's more just about the effort that you're putting in to bring those sales across the line. When I think about business development, it's a little bit more creative, where you're, you know, the, the product and the understanding of the product, actually, my product background helps on that component of it, which is how can you go and build partnerships that are going to allow you to scale your operation in a way that you wouldn't have to do it yourself. Um, and... Um, that would, that's what I would say the major difference is. You know, you're, you're looking for net new opportunities for the entire business as opposed to just uh, selling something that you know, already has that built in. And I think um, from my experience, my first job uh, was in business development for a startup media company back in Vancouver. And they're, they're practically... You didn't mention that. I didn't. No, yeah. I did not mention that. I rarely tell that to people. Um, but I was cold calling when I was um, trying to get my first summer internship. And I joined a media company out in the nice Yale Tempars of Vancouver and they're practically it's a, it's a digitized uh, magazine company and they tried, they're trying to make a software where if you click on the magazine like picture it showed it links you back to where you can buy the actual product um, and I was in business development and I would, you know I, I did well um, I was I got the most uh, amount of partnerships compared to my peers but I really hated it just because I just didn't think this was going to go anywhere. Um, and I found that was really... So you hated the product or you hated what the, you were actually doing? The product. And mm-hmm. I think that was like the big thing where I still liked talking to a lot of different people constantly. But I just didn't even want to tell them to do use this product just because I didn't think it was going to go anywhere. And I found that was a, that's a very important thing. Obviously, it's important to every part of the business. But I feel that when you're, especially in the front lines, mm-hmm. as part of the revenue generation, that belief, I think, is for me, materially much more important than if I was in like an operational finance or finance role, for example. Um, and I think that's something that I, I realized when I was going through that role myself. Yeah, I, I mean, it comes back to, I think I, I already mentioned this here, but you, 
you're never going to be able to sell something that you don't believe in works, right? Or maybe you can, but you just don't, you don't feel good about it. Yeah. Um, and that's a really important thing that I've realized over time. It's another thing that I didn't like about advisory services, which is that you don't really pick and choose in advisory services, right? You're going, you're, you're more of a gun for hire. So there were some companies or organizations that I worked with when I was in that role that I really enjoyed and really believed in. And there were other ones that I didn't, and that affected my ability to motivate myself to, to do that work. Yeah, and I think that's something um, a lot of people in consulting talk about too, where essentially we have to make the product sound good when we're selling it. And mm-hmm. so sometimes, like I'll make a model, and based on my forecast, I don't think this project will make any money, but we have to make a 15% IRR. <laughs> so, <laughs> That means, I guess, my input data was wrong. So I have to find better <laughs> input data. Yeah, and yeah. That that stuff to me can be really soul sucking, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, definitely. And so, for you, um, if uh, in this kind of um, partnership business development role, what kind of activity puts you into like a state of flow? That level of just total immersion and engagement, where you just forget to eat. Um, forget to just yeah. go to the bathroom. You're just in love with it. Um, I really enjoy doing the research and prepping for meetings that we have identified where there's a new opportunity. And so, you know, I'll, I'll put that in context. We have and will be launching in partnership with the NHS uh, and Public Health England, a care program in that country uh, beginning in you know January 2019. It's a huge market. It's double the size of Canada, you know, in about the size of, of Nova Scotia. And um, getting a, uh, um, you know, having to, to go and really learn something new and take what we've applied and apply it in a new market, uh, you know, doing that research and then taking all the data and, and, and thinking about how you're going to be able to add value and apply it in a place where you have, you have a model that's worked, but you have to kind of tweak it so that it makes sense for the new partners, that's, that puts me into a flow state. Um, it's thinking about and solving really big, complex problems. I find it to be a chess, uh, you know, kind of like a, a chess game. It's, it's how do you get us as a, a small, um, you know, as a really small company, we're 35 people, um, we have worked with over, in, in Canada, 30 or 40 different government organizations in the last two and a half years. So, you know, plotting and mapping out how we got those organizations on board, uh, that really big kind of problem solving stuff, that, that, that's the stuff that I love. And then if, if you could categorize your activities into kind of buckets, so mm-hmm. it's like if we looked at a company and we saw the segments of their revenue, um, and you could allocate it based on like percentage of time you spend. How would it look? Like for example, at um, my previous like hedge fund role, I'd say about fifty percent of my time is on researching, and that's like annual report reading, and then about thirty percent on management calls, talking to suppliers, customers, etc. And then about fifteen percent is sitting down and just thinking, staring into, into the zone and trying to ideate my thoughts, and about five percent meetings. Yeah. How would you um, divvy it up? And I know obviously every day or every week could be different, but if you're looking at like even like a year span, how would it look? It, that would be so hard to quantify. And I would say that you know, especially over a year span, um, there's some you know weeks. I would say at least half my day is in meetings, and it should be anybody who's a business development professional who's not out and talking to people on the market um, should maybe be doing something else. Uh, a lot of um, 
what you end up doing now is we've scaled. So when we started, there was kind of four of us in a shed, you know, getting this going, and I was on my own figuring this out. I now have a team of six people that um, that you know are focused on this. So how um, to create a high-performing team is something that I spend a lot of time thinking about. And then I really bucket. Um, there's an amazing book. I don't know if we actually talked about this when I met you. Called the Effective Executive. Yeah, we talked about by Peter it, yeah. Drucker. It's a 50-year-old book, and the whole idea about where you're allocating your time to get the biggest impact. I spent a lot of time thinking about that. So you know, um, those things really are creating a high-performance team, and then. The other side of that is um, looking at the big strategic buckets that we have um, that are going to drive the most revenue, but also the most growth potential for for Carrot. And then I always have those that I'm trying to allocate my time to. And that's a, um, you know, I'm looking at that as something that's going to be a lifelong skill. That's a really hard thing to be able to master the things that you can that you say no to. Yeah, I think um, it's. It's a phase, and I think if, as you get to a certain level, um, you hit a point where now you have to learn to say no to so many different things. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it plays upon the, the kind of social um, perception of how quitting is bad, but quitting is one way of saying no. You have to say no to so many different things to be really good at one thing. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's, it's I, with that too, it's, you know... You can be good at multiple things. I think you have to be able to define what your objectives are, right? And then that might be not being great at one thing. It might be being a mile wide and an inch deep as opposed to the opposite. But really, you know, looking at what kinds of things you want to have a career, what you want to have a life, um, and defining those, that's something that I feel like putting a lot of mental energy into is uh, ultimately worthwhile. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a good good place to kind of do our final kind of wrap it, um, wrap up questions that I ask all the guests. Um, if your 20 year old self were to look at you now, so the mat of third year and queen still in poli sci, um, what do you think uh, his emotional reaction would be to where you are right now? I think you think it was pretty cool to be honest. Um, you know, the one the one thing that I have now, uh, where I'm at in my career currently, is that and this has been a new thing, which is that you look at all these component parts of my many different careers and explorations, and at the time they made no sense. And there was uh, a lot of moments where I had a lot of anxiety about, you know, if I was how it was all going to kind of come together and made sense. And that's kind of manifested itself in Carrot. You know, it combines a mobile product background with a government relations or public affairs job and all those different things are are, are uh, combine a lot of different learnings that have made me you know uh, good in the role that I'm in now and, and I would say that that wasn't always the case being able to see what that looked like um, but I always knew that uh, you know in, in terms of things that a third year university me wanted was to go travel to go see the world which I did and um, you know, I'd always had an interest in in being an entrepreneur as, as a kid. I, you know, I had the lemonade stand. I started a mail order business when I was 13. Um, I'd always was really interested in business and um, appreciated that I actually expanded that scope in my university education and doing things that are different because I feel like they actually make me better at business. And is there then any advice that you'd give to that 20-year-old Matt that you wish you had gone? Yeah, I would say that 
you know, don't, especially when you're young, don't stay in your lane, you know. Um, there's no, it, it's going to be a lot harder, especially, you know, if you are surrounded by, which I'm sure most of your listeners are, ambitious, successful friends. Um, you're going to see people that pass you at various stages and, and seem like they have an idea about what they want to be doing and it's really clear and, you know, no one really does uh, is the, the other, you know, the, the reality of the situation. And so it's just, you know, continue to be as curious as you can and, and really think about what you like to do. Um, that's the other thing that I would say, which is that, and it, it, it would be the advice that I would give myself wanting to, or thought I wanted to go be a diplomat. You know, it's what do you like to do on a day-to-day basis? Um, and figuring out what that is uh, should help to inform what career decisions you're looking at, as opposed to thinking about what you think you should be doing. Actually looking at how the time is spent. Right? Exactly. And being able to quantify it like you did, which I obviously couldn't. <laughs> you could start now, too. <laughs> <laughs> I'll th- I have to think about it more. Yeah, yeah. No, um, this is a really fun chat, and I really appreciate you giving me the time to you know learn more about your story and also share it with our listeners yeah thanks for having me this is great yeah oh thanks a lot man thanks so thanks for listening to the podcast if you enjoyed what you heard please check out other episodes and don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date for the future episodes Also, I would really appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, whichever is applicable to you. To see past episodes, you can go to oldmandan.com slash podcasts. Also, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter on my blog, oldmandan.com slash newsletter. You can stay up to date with future podcast episodes that way, and included in the newsletter are my book reviews I write, my weekly article in the related to the domain of self-development systems, as well as seven things I learned throughout the week on being healthy, wealthy, and wise. Finally, special thanks to icons8.com for allowing me to use their music, Tiny People, on the podcast. Great. I will see you all next time. Take care.